0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we discuss data analytics strategy, team building, stakeholder management, and the lessons learned with top industry leaders out there in the field today. This podcast is designed to help you get your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful week. Today, we're speaking with Michael Brand. He is the founder at Otma Analytics. Michael is based in Melbourne, Australia, and he has a long and distinguished career. He tells us a little bit about his time working in Israel and then Australia. Over his career, he's been head of algorithms. He's been chief scientist. He's been group algorithm leader principal data scientist, also chief data scientist at Telstra, which is one of the largest telecommunications companies in the world. He's taught at Monash University for a long time as an associate professor, now as an adjunct associate professor. And as I mentioned before, in November 2018, he founded his own consulting company, Otzman Analytics, which he tells us a little bit about as well. It is a really interesting episode. Michael has a wealth of experience. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it with a friend. I will be forever grateful if you do. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here's the interview with Michael Brand. Hi, this is Felipe. Today, I'm speaking with Michael. Michael, thank you so much for making the time. I've been really looking forward to speaking with you. So it's great to get a chance. I wanted to first ask you, how did you get started in the space? What was it or how was it that you were pulled into the world of data science?
1: So first of all, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. To answer that question, well, I started off at a very young age uh, doing a bit of programming. I didn't start with analytics, but very quickly within a year or two, I found myself just simply bored with it. It just wasn't what I was interested in doing. And the more interesting problems that were not just about how do we scale this up or how do we do this faster, but How do we do this at all, that started becoming more interesting to me. And I happened to fall into a few quite interesting ones right at the start of my career. For example, I was one of the first people to look at continuous blood pressure measurements. When you go to the doctor and they measure your blood pressure, it's a number, but nobody really knows how to interpret this number. It was sort of assumed that this number is going to be something that is fairly constant throughout the day. But then they started doing continuous measurements over periods of, at the time, 48 hours. Now they're doing it for a lot more. And we realized it was nothing of the sort. Just everything that you did was influencing your blood pressure and the graph of how that uh, looked. It was fractalite. It was chaotic. It was everything you didn't expect it to be. Medical professionals had nothing, had no idea how to analyze that. So I was called in and it was a very exciting project that, I think, gave me uh, the confidence to continue pursuing this. And I started falling into other good projects. I was hired by a company to demand prediction for Israel's uh, second largest bakery. Wow. Really beautiful project to be working on just two years after you've started in the profession. Yes. Yes. Yeah, after that, it was a bit of an avalanche. I um, found myself... So this was Israel. And in Israel, you have to go to the IDF, to the army, for a few years. Everybody does. And uh, because of this experience and because of uh, the attitude I brought into problem solving, I found myself not in the infantry or something, but rather in a unit that was devoted to data science. Really? And yeah, and this was big data, data science that would have been considered cutting edge if it was done today, but this was 20 years ago. And what? it was amazing. Uh-huh. I, at the time, was too young to appreciate just how amazing it was. Uh-huh. I was working alongside some of the best mathematicians in the world. It was just phenomenal. And I ended up being there for a full seven years, ended up leading teams there. And by the time I graduated from there, I knew that I was a data scientist and I knew exactly what was important for me in that profession and where my strengths lie. I learned through these seven years so much about how to differentiate between good data science and not so good data science. It was uh, quite an experience to look back at those first few projects and realize that I actually did a very bad job there. I thought I was doing a good job, but I fooled myself. And uh, yeah, after that, when I left uh, the IDF and started working for uh, many other companies down the road. I brought all of that learning with me and I found that this uh, bad data science was quite common. A lot of people are doing it. Not many people had that luxury of those seven years that I had. So now this is my advantage and that's what I bring from place to place. And that's how my career started.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So before we jump into the rest of your career, I'll ask you about the three really interesting applications that, that you were talking about. So first was the blood pressure monitoring over time. What type of things did you find with that data? How was that process of of capturing the data, analyzing it, and and what type of things came out as a result of the analysis.
1: So, okay, this is. Uh project that is now, what, 20, 25 years old. So excuse me if I don't remember all of the Uh details. But basically, it started with uh, just an attempt to get to continuous measurements. Initially, the devices were the same devices that are used typically, except they were automatic, and they just continuously measured the blood every few minutes, or sometimes even every few seconds. So we had those measurements. And we realized that something very odd was going on there. So we uh, looked for more data. And turns out there were no actually continuous measurements for humans, but there were continuous measurements for mice. This was done directly intravenously. So we had at the level of individual seconds what the mice blood pressure looks like. Now it's obvious that you're going to see fluctuations on heartbeats because the heart just pushes the blood and that immediately has a shockwave of pressure to the entire system. But what we found out is that this shockwave creates a chaotic system, really in the mathematical sense, a a chaotic system. And you can see that heartbeat in different, it's like a wavelet. have these at various scales throughout, no matter which scale you're looking at. And on top of that, we found, and this is not just something that we found, this was something that was increasingly becoming common knowledge among those who were looking at this data. We found that Everything a person does impacts their blood pressure. So if you ate something, it's an impact. If you just climbed a flight of stairs, it's an impact. If you're standing or sitting, it's an impact. Just the fact that you're sitting at a doctor's office and they're measuring your blood pressure changes it. Perhaps the most shocking finding was in every 24-hour period, there was one point in which there was a spike in blood pressure that, to quote, one of the medical professionals we were working with, if they had seen this without knowing where it came from, they would have assumed this person is having a heart attack right now. What? And this happens every time you wake up. (laughs) Just a change from sleep to wakefulness. There's a huge spike there. Wow. that yeah. so, it would have never been measured before. Exactly. So this was brand new data. Yeah. And I think this was something that I carried with me later on in, in all of my career, which was when you have data that nobody's ever looked at, before, you will see stuff that nobody's ever seen before. And all of the low-hanging fruits are still there, so they're ripe for the taking. If something you've never measured before, you have no idea how it behaves. You have lots of theories about how it's going to behave. Believe me, they're always going to be wrong. (laughs) So true. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. This work was obviously uh, back in Israel?
1: Yes, Yes, yes. This was for one of the big hospitals in Israel. This was for their ICU unit. Incredible.
0: So interesting.
1: And what about the demand
0: prediction for the bakery?
1: The demand prediction for the bakery was a less surprising project. It went more according to the general scheme of how these things go. We had some ideas about having some trends, having some seasonality, having impacts from holidays, having impacts from other general activities, uh, annual cycles, et cetera, et cetera. So we measured all of these things in the actual data. They were all there. And we. Um, Uh, we uh, actually uh, found that uh, we could predict things really well. What was surprising, however, in retrospect, not that surprising. Today, when I look at it, uh, for me, it's obvious, but back then it was quite a revelation. Weather data. It just, what you buy and what you eat is just so impacted by what the weather is like. It's crazy, right? And every human activity is just uh, uh, so influenced by weather. I remember in one of the... Data science meetup meetings last year, I think uh, there were two speakers from Sportsbet. One of them was from the side that predicts who is going to bet on events. And another was from the side that predicts who is going to win in events. And after the talk, I asked both of them about the weight of weather in their predictions and both said that it's huge. So yes, everything, everything is impacted by weather. At the time, of course, getting that kind of data was not as straightforward as it is today. True. So uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted today were hard work back then, but still we had that. And one thing that I learned during that project was... You have in data science the poster-sized list of all of the metrics that you can use. You know the PPV, the NPV, the ROC, the AUC, uh, precision, recall, lift everything, and none of them matter. In the end, there is a business need, and that business need will have its own formula, and it will not be like any of the... It's not F1, it's not F-beta, it's not any of these things, and you need to understand what it is if you want to optimize the right thing. Otherwise, you end up optimizing the wrong thing. And what turned out to be the most impactful thing in our prediction back then was to understand shelf life which I was completely not expecting when we started the project.
0: Of course, I wouldn't have expected that either. That's some <laughs> domain knowledge that is required there. How how did you come up finding
1: that? Oh, from uh, uh, domain experts. I mean, we started with a this vanilla prediction that we got to, and I thought at the time that it was great. But then we started getting feedback from the company that their manual prediction was better than ours. And I was wondering why, and we started digging into it. And yes, ultimately, if you don't work with people with domain knowledge, you will be missing some very serious things. Exactly right. How did you learn what you were
0: saying just before around that, none of the metrics, none of the accuracy metrics, you know, around the confusion metrics, specificity, et cetera, like none of those are important unless you know what the real business need is. How did you first come to that realization? How did you first learn that?
1: Well, it's one of the things that I think crystallizes over time. You see it in various contexts. Yes. I mentioned the bakery example, and you see it again and again, and from different angles. And at some point, it crystallizes for you that this is what this was about Mm. throughout the whole time. It's not something that when you see it for the first time, you have a name for. I'll tell you what the light bulb moment was. The light bulb moment was when I understood class balancing. So you have problems like risk prediction or fraud, defaults, Mm -hmm. your garden variety marketing. And they have such low base rates. And what do you do as a data scientist? What are you taught to do? You're taught to create balanced classes for your training. Why? Because it helps the metrics. Why? Because the metrics are basically frequentist. Not a single one of them is Bayesian. And what do you do in order to get the balanced classes? Well, you take 90% of the data that you have in your training set and you throw it away because you have too much of it. How does that make any sense? And when... So, the moment that it crystallized for me, the light bulb moment, was when I realized that we're throwing away all of this data that we have in our training sets just to get a, a balanced set. And I realized that this was simply because of the metrics. We were using metrics that were just not using the information properly. And then I heard that other people got to the same realizations for different reasons. And I remember speaking to Raid Ghani, who is one of the people who headed the uh, data science work in the Obama campaign and later on moved to the University of Chicago and heads there the Data Science for Social Good Department. I think it's a department. In any case, Reid Ghani in his talks was talking about the fact that they were looking at how to optimize investment. And all of these various projects are showing what you can do with the various types of investments. But the problem was that that just isn't how projects are funded. There is a certain amount of funding. The question is how best to utilize that level of funding. And you don't have metric that optimizes that, any standard tool. And I I looked at that and I said, well, that's exactly how marketing departments behave. That's exactly how value at risk is used in financial institutions. That's how the world at large looks at data. And the fact that we are not using any metrics that relate to that is a problem.
0: That is fantastic. And I definitely wanted to ask when that solidified, when that view solidified for you, because it's something that I see that is so strongly ingrained in your approach to data science, that it's essentially no bullshit, outcomes driven, and using I really, which we'll get to, I really like the way that you use the extremely large technical arsenal, but in a way that you don't get lost in the technical side and you're able to be so outcomes driven. So this is sort of one part of that execution that I see that you have on data science that that I was so curious about when that came into fruition. So it's interesting to see that that's where Where it came from. What can you tell us about your time doing data science in the
1: army? Nothing.
0: (laughs) Obviously, there was large data sets for the time. There would have been a lot of external data sets.
1: There were large data sets and large computation powers, not just for the time. They would have been considered large today as well. Very large projects, lots of data engineering and other software um, considerations had to be taken into account. All of the things, again, that we're taking for granted today, like the existence of Hadoop or a cloud or things like that, none of that existed back then. Mm -hmm. Obviously, cloud was not an option, not that it existed, but it wouldn't have been an option even had it existed. So we had to invent a lot of the theory. We had people who were inventing how to do the data engineering. We were having people inventing how to do the data management. We had people inventing how to do the data science. And I was lucky enough to head some of the uh, theoretical work. I had a a wonderful panel of really some of the best experts in the world coming to ideas about how to manage this kind of research. And I remember how much we worked on things like for example, multiple hypothesis testing discounting. So the Bonferroni type things of the world. We had to come up with that entire theory because what existed in the literature, what still exists in the literature, was not enough for what we needed.
0: And then those developments not able to be published or made public in any way? Or is there? Is no, there no. Some... Those
1: developments don't get published in any way. But the Thinking, the how to get from a problem to a solution stays with you and follows you throughout everything that you do later on, and it certainly has.
0: And were there particular ways of thinking that you developed during that time that you haven't seen very common during the rest of your career?
1: So one thing that back when I started was a lot more done, a lot more accepted, a lot more the standard procedure. And I miss today, because today it's becoming increasingly an uphill battle to get it done, and I think it's the only way to do data science, is to use the scientific method. We are increasingly in a world where we're pushed towards thinking about data science as a form of engineering. We put the ingredients in place, mix them according to the right way, possibly do something agile involving standing up, and somehow it will happen. And that's just not the case. That's not how data science is done. When I started, this was quite obvious for a lot of people because, hey, it's science. And we were testing hypotheses. We were trying things out. We were failing again and again and building through that our knowledge of what is and what works and how the world behaves and how the world is impacted by our decisions. And... That's how we got to the results that we got. Now I see people who are blindly writing code and expecting it for some reason to work out of the box. And it just doesn't. It never does. I've never, ever seen it. And I can tell you for the post my career in the IDF, I think the first half of my career between then and now is just fixing other people's data science because I I had always this very eclectic background where I never did exactly what you want done, but I have success record here and there and in this other place and People who tried it in the conventional way and failed and failed and failed at some point got frustrated enough to try something else, so they got me. And the track record that I continued building on success is what uh, propelled my career forward. And it's not magic and it's not any form of genius. It's just let's not assume that we know what the answer is before we tried.
0: I love that you brought this up and that we're talking about this now. Could you uh, paint two pictures for us? One of data science following the scientific method, and then data science following the engineering method. It can be both on the expectations from the business or the way that the teams are run. And why do you think we've moved onto the engineering method? being more common for data science? That's the main question. Why do you think we moved to the engineering method? And what are some other differences between the engineering approach and the scientific method approach? What would you like to see done?
1: A simple example, so in the past 10 years, I've done what I call analytic reviews or analytics audits once every week by clockwork. So I was managing multiple teams. I was in uh, chief scientist, chief data scientist positions in various companies, and I had responsibility over the work of multiple teams of data scientists. So what I did was every time a project came into, started or ended or was at the decision stage, I would gather everyone in a room and I would have the relevant data scientists just present what they've done, go through their thinking. How did we get from A to B? And would pinpoint where the weaker assumptions were or where something was not tested or where there were leaps in the logic or misinterpretations of what the results were. And uh, this is also what I do nowadays. I mean, this is what, uh, as a consultant now in in Otsma Analytics, this is one of the three services that I provide. And what I found out throughout is that you don't get the good thinking. People are hurrying to get to the result. People are incentivized by the flashy results. So basically, if you want a side-by-side comparison, supposing that I am trying to predict Something, it doesn't matter what, and I find that I have beautiful correlation, and the F1 is fantastic, and AUC is off the scale, etc., etc., etc. What should be your first thought? <laughs> and I find increasingly that data scientists believe that their first thought is, let's run and show this to the boss, and we'll get a raise. And my first thought, and what I strongly advocate for data scientists to be their first thought, is, oops, how did I get this wrong? Correct. This can't be. It's too good. Most likely, I would say the first thing I would check for is I have a ground truth leakage somewhere in this experiment. That's my thinking. It's driven by Twyman's law. It's driven by let's find out how I fold myself. And we're very good at fooling ourselves. So that is not something that goes away. That is something that you just need to be aware of. That's a side-by-side comparison, and as an example, case in point, well, in one of the audits that I've done before a project started, this was an external consultant was working on uh, this particular project. We were doing demand prediction. I won't say where. I'll, I'll keep that obfuscated. We were doing a demand prediction on something that is uh, daily, and there were three months worth of historical data for uh, multiple sites. Each site was assumed to behave differently, independently. And the outside contractor, the outside consultant said, well, we're going to build a deep learning model for each one of these separately. We're going to predict. And I was saying, what? Because if you have three months worth of daily data, you have ninety data points. And how are you going to build a deep learning model off of 90 numbers? Unfortunately, it wasn't convincing enough for the stakeholder. They decided to go with the uh, external uh, consultant anyway. However, in my team, we managed to get at least to the point that what it is that the consultant produced, we wanted to actually test. So we had a, a live test bench for this and we were able to show uh, that there was no statistical correlation, not any statistically significant correlation, there was actually negative correlation between what was predicted and what was the actual. And in fact, we were able to show that the simple linear regression got to better results than the deep learning model. So that's the difference, that's the side-by-side comparison of scientific method versus let's just do it in an engineering way.
0: Correct, and going with the hype. As, and sort of buying into a deep learning approach versus a proper scientific method, was there a, a paradox or a fallacy at play
1: in that example, in that particular example? Let's see. Let's go over the names of the various fallacies and see what would fit in this particular case. Yeah, this is a case of overfitting. Yeah. You have an overly complicated model for not enough data, you overfit. Now, specifically, I think that there's it's not... You know, saying that it's about the hype is true, but I think it misses the larger picture. Uh And the larger picture is we have moved into a world where data science is accepted as a mainstream way in which businesses are expected to gain value. And they are expected to invest in this. If a board of directors sees that the CEO of a company is not investing $100 million in analytics, they're going to be angry. Mm-hmm. But we haven't gotten to the point of understanding how to invest those $100 million in a wise way, Yes, in a proper way. What we have in today's picture of the world is we have a lot of junior data scientists. I was one of the people who started the Monash Masters in Data Science. There are similar masters in just about any other university in Australia right now, much the same as elsewhere in the world. So we have a, a huge influx of data scientists. Also, just about every software developer out there who wants to increase their salary goes through some Coursera course and hey, they're a data scientist too. Also, if you were yesterday a data analyst, you are today a data scientist <laughs> and should get a raise. So we have so many junior data scientists in the market. But as soon as they go into the job market and want to start working, they get explained that there are several types of data scientists and you have to choose which one you are. We have the data scientists who write programs. We have the data scientists who produce charts. We have the data scientists who write PowerPoint presentations. Oh, and also we have the data scientists who do data engineering. I look at that and I say, Are you crazy? (laughs) So there's a name for each one of these professions. You can be a data engineer, really. It's a profession. You can be a programmer. You can also a BI person if you want to produce charts. Mm-hmm. It's all good. These are very good professions, mm-hmm. vital for the data economy at large. Not a single one of them is data science. Yeah. And what happens is that data scientists, no matter how many years of experience they have, do not become experienced data scientists. They are not seasoned data scientists because the experience that they gain is not data science experience. Yes. And as a result, there's this huge gap in the market. There is nobody to create the tone of how to do this properly and to navigate companies into the right paths. And Mm. when that gap exists, who steps in? The vendors. Yes. Because now you have huge money riding on particular products. So you get the hype. You get vendors that are telling you, just do deep learning. It will work. And even if you don't do deep learning, we are going to invent something. We're not gonna tell you what it is. We're just gonna copyright a new code name for it. Let's call it cognitive computing. And there you go. And because it's copyrighted, nobody else will sell it. So definitely you have to buy it from us, but there you have it. Use it, it will work. And every time companies For reasons that are obvious, they have to, under pressure from their board and from their investors, they have to fall for these because everybody else is doing it. Mm. So you have to. And as a result, we've got things like, oh, artificial intelligence. We have to have it. Nobody's been able to define what artificial intelligence is, but we were definitely going to buy some. Give me three of them if you can. (laughs) Now, companies who have already done this know that it doesn't work. And after you figure out that it doesn't work, what do you do? You go back to the vendor and you say, this doesn't work, fix it for me, please. What does the vendor do? Well, the vendor just comes up with the next buzzword. And if we had uh, cognitive computing and we had artificial intelligence, well, now we have, uh, what is it, software 2.0. And the same thing goes for the data scientists themselves. Because data scientists, whereas business executives get confused by the large words that do not have meaning, and they are assuming that there's some technical reality behind them, which is completely wrong to assume, what confuses data scientists is ultra-specific words like deep learning. And I remember hearing in one of the uh, recent uh, data science meetups, a person asked, completely out of the blue, this was not uh, related in any way to the talk that was uh, before, asked, when is this deep learning madness going to end? <laughs> and I was so happy that somebody asked that question. It meant that people are starting to get wise to this. The problem is that much like the vendors changed the language in order to fool the executives, they also changed the language in order to fool the data scientists. And now that we know that data scientists are beginning to wisen up about deep learning, what happens? Well, now let's do AutoML. Yes. And this cycle can go on for as long as businesses let it go on and as long as data scientists let it go on. And I understand completely the dilemma that junior data scientists are in at the moment. Even if you know that the emperor has no clothes, you are pressured not to say it Mm -hmm. because the more you keep your head down and just do the deep learning model and god help you do not test how well it works you will get that raise here i am with a very different message that is a, a difficult message i say yes you might get that raise but you are chopping the very branch you're sitting on, <laughs> and this entire market is blowing up. It's burning down, and I can see it burning down. I don't know how, where it's going to be in five years' time. I don't know where it's going to be in 10 years' time. If you want to have a career in data science, you don't want executives to believe that this is on par with uh, crystal ball gazing. If you want to have something that people will continue paying for, it needs to have substance, so do what I've been doing all my career, which is push back on this nonsense and say, let's do things the way that they should be done in order to get results that actually have value. And my track record is of billions of dollars in value creation, hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, valuation creation. And any other type of statistic that you want to pick, the value is very clearly there. Mm -hmm. And I had to fight for it because every step of the way, the inertia was in the wrong way. The inertia was in favor of, well, let's just assume that this is going to work. My first week after I left the IDF, I had one other job for six months. You know, we're going to skip that. But after that, I got a job at a company called Variant Systems. I started there as a data scientist in a team that was at the time five people called the Advanced Technologies Group. It was just starting. And what it was trying to do was to look at contact center conversations, recordings of contact center conversations, and try to gain value out of it. The first thing that I did, the first week of the job, I was given by my boss at the time three different speech-to-text engines, large vocabulary, continuous speech recognizers, LBCSR, to be technical. And I was asked to say which one of them we should go with. And I said, well, let's test them. And my boss said, we don't have to test them. They've already been tested. And here are the results. This, you know, 30% word uh, recognition rate, 40% word recognition rate, 50% word recognition rate. And yeah, those, those are the type of numbers you get at contact centers. Yeah. And I said, yes, but I want to run this test anyway. I don't know in what conditions those tests were run. That was considered a waste of time, and I was asked not to do it, and I was given a different task to do uh, during that week. So obviously what I did was I did that other job until my boss went home, and then I did what I believed needs to be done. And we realized after testing that what was 50% was actually 30% Mm -hmm. because the test was done by that vendor. This is a very large vendor whose name you recognize and is one of the top in the market. But we gave them a training set and a test set, and they got to 50%. But if you tested on a set of conversations that we didn't give them, Mm -hmm. it was 30%. At the time, I thought they put their thumb on the scales. It's been a few years, and nowadays I just think No, they didn't put their thumb on the scales. They're just not good at testing. They are a vendor. And like all other vendors, they are at a situation where the worse their testing set is, the better their results are going to be Mm -hmm. because they don't go for Twyman's Law. They are the ones who rush to the boss and say, look at these wonderful correlations. Look at the wonderful finding that we have. They don't need to go back and say, well, maybe we got it wrong. They are not incentivized to do it in any way. And I've worked for vendors, I've seen this firsthand, and I can't even say that vendors are not aware of it or that it's not done in any way maliciously. They're just not good at it, and they're not incentivized to become any better. So that was, I think, the first thing that I learned on the first week of that job in Verint, which is you can outsource a lot of things, but you do your own testing. Yes. So we didn't end up going for that 50%. In the end, by the way, it wasn't even the 40%. In the end, we went for the 30% one. And after a while, we stopped even using that and built our own. And it was better. Varent Speech Analytics products have since taken over the world because we were the first to get it right. That makes sense.
0: That is an excellent case study of the value of going against the inertia, as you said, and going against the tide and fixing these problems. So I wanted to ask you about how to fix these issues. So it seems like there is a lack or a low numbers of properly prepared leaders and maybe managers as well in the space that can help guide the companies through the terrain being laid out by the marketing departments of these large vendors. So it seems like we are creating this weakness that in this case, vendors are exploiting. And that is being done at several levels within the organization. I can definitely say that I've seen it on my career as well. But how do you think are some ways that we can start to fill this gap? Or what are some things that people can either do or look for either when choosing a job or in their career to avoid these mistakes? What are some of your advice in this front?
1: So I've worked in the past in three different ways in this. I'm trying to up the level of education of the market in this. I've uh, done work with managers, which I've started when I did the short course, the data science for managers short course at Monash. I've done work with junior data scientists, or as we said, data scientists with years of experience, but perhaps not seasoned. And I've done work with some quite seasoned data scientists, and I've also done work with and for vendors, which is a different thing. So not one of the three. But in the end, these three avenues are the basics of why I started Otsman Analytics and what I provide as part of Otsman Analytics. So when we're talking about managers, I provide training for the managers in order to prepare them, to get them to understand the analytics value chain mm-hmm. and what are the questions to ask? What this can do, what this can't do, et cetera. I work with the data scientists in what I call consulting. So I follow projects and I try to steer them towards value and teach people how to look for value as opposed to how to follow metrics. And I do uh, the, the analytics auditing that we talked about previously, which is really a good place, I think, for companies to start because it's a very pointwise intervention in a project where. Where you end up spending very little money because basically, I just come in for like half a day, learn what has been done in a particular project or what the plan is in a particular project, and outline where the logic is good and where the logic needs perhaps review and revision. And between these three things, which are the core of what I do these days, I think education is progressing. But I think, again, that there is a deeper underlying issue underneath all of this. An analogy that I quite like is the analogy of data science where it currently is with medicine where it was in the 17th century. So we're talking about the medicine of every practitioner is an expert, and they're your personal physician. You hire them because of personal trust in them, and you will end up drinking their potions and their concoctions, which are their trade secret. They've built them up based on their own personal knowledge and will take that secret to their grave, and that medicine is gone. (laughs) That medicine is gone because it doesn't work. And it's been replaced by a world in which if you want me to take this medicine, show me the tests.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that if data science is not going to die on the vine, which is, I think, a very much a real danger, then that's where we need to be heading. We need to be heading towards a world where data science is done in a regulated way, in a transparent way, in, in an externally reviewed way there is nobody who can see the hump in their own back. We all make mistakes. Not any one of us is perfect. The fact is that right now as a practitioner, as a consultant offering this kind of audit, I find that it is extremely difficult to convince companies that they need an external review because hey, we have a data science team, why do we need an external review? And just the fact that you would suggest an external review, are you saying our data scientists are no good? That's not at all the case. I would like my own work to be externally reviewed, and in fact, it always has been. And I think that is a mental shift that needs to happen, because what we have sold, what created this huge hype for data scientists and made it so popular is and I, I will say this guardedly, a lie. And that lie is that data science is a money for nothing offering. That data science is a form of magic. It's like fairy dust. You add it to your business and it makes your business better. Yes. And that's completely untrue. Data science is something that organizations spend hundreds of millions of dollars on. It increases their risk. It is a very risky endeavor. It's based on research which so many data scientists these days are refusing to say. It's a word that is taboo in the Australian market because if you say research, then, well, does that mean you don't know how to do this? Mm -hmm. Well, no, I don't know how to do this. That's why data science is there. It's meant to find out how to do this. It's the process in which we find out these things. If you're not willing to go through that process, you're not getting the benefits of data science and you will still end up paying those hundreds of millions of dollars, but you will not get any value for it. And what I see again and again is companies spending all of that money and often tens, sometimes hundreds of people and having them work for years and years. Mm -hmm. And in the end, what do you get? You get the data architecting a giant lake that nobody knows how to use, it becomes a swamp. The data engineers are busy designing Kafka pipelines that push data from here to there. And the programmers are so excited about how much can be pushed into the cloud. And then you ask yourself, what did I build all of this for? And you realize you have no answer. Certainly the data scientists don't want it or need it. Not at least in the uh, first iterations. That's not where you start. That's where you sometimes end up where after you've reached through a few conclusions, but it's not where you start. And because organizations don't understand that, they lose more and more and more money. And at some point, they will close the power on this. And I know many companies that already did. I know of many large teams of data scientists and analysts that have been closed down because companies are not seeing the value. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes, absolutely. And the reason why it's not happening more is because data science is so bad in industry is that companies don't realize this. They are so used to accountancy tricks that move money from here to there that they don't see that this particular department is losing them hundreds of millions of dollars. They don't measure it in that way. But any good data scientist would have been able to measure that and say, we're losing on this money. So again, catch 22 there. So that's the point. This point is we need as data scientists, as a collective to come to our bosses and say, we know that you thought we were magicians when you hired us. Mm We're not magicians, we don't do magic, we do science. It's a process, it works in particular ways, and it needs specific types of things. And one of those things is peer review. There is no science without peer review. I'm fully aware that organizations are rightly guarded about the way that they do data science, which is why you need all of the NDAs, et cetera, which is why it can't be done in the way that it's done in academia. Mm -hmm. But you do external reviews on your accountancy. You do external reviews on any part of the business that you can think of. Why are you not doing it here? All of the problems about secrecy, et cetera, they're worse in finance. They're worse in accountancy. You're telling your accountant everything about your business. Yeah. So bring in somebody external. Doesn't have to be me. Bring anyone who can look at your project and give you a second opinion about what it is that you're doing. Mm. And you will be so much better off for it.
0: Very true. I know that in the times that I've brought in external reviews to my teams and my projects, we've definitely benefited from that immensely. I have felt that organizations feel that both that they don't understand data science, and I think that goes to your point of data science is a magic fairy dust that is sprinkled in the business. But then the other thing is, I think... They feel that data science makes part of their competitive advantage and that getting that reviewed, let the secrets out. What would you say to that point of view?
1: Absolutely. Data science should be part of your advantage and you have many secrets, but... You also have many NDAs, Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of tools to make sure that you can ask for this advice without losing that precious secret. However, everywhere where I looked, both in the 10 years before I started doing this as a consultant and in the six months that I'm doing this now as a consultant, what I found is that, as they say, sunshine is the best disinfectant those secrets, they tend to not work. And when we we're talking about your data science being your secret sauce that makes your company better, well, whenever I go to a company and I check that secret sauce, what I find is most more often than not, that this company does not have a data strategy. And no matter what the data scientists will do, even if they do wonderful, wonderful jobs, yeah. The company will gain not a cent from it because it has no path to monetization. There's so many places where you find yourself starting a data science project and you see in the contract something like, there will not be any process change as a result of this project. Mm. That's part of what you have to agree I'm to, what, what you have to sign in order to get the project, because the company is so fearful that they might change the workflow because of your work. And my first degree, my bachelor's degree was in industrial engineering. And I've gained, by the way, so much from that. And one of my lecturers had a favorite saying. He said, if you've made a technological change and there was no resulting process change, that has a name, it's called a failure. So companies that want to have data science but are refusing to accept that the output of data science is a change in process, well, your secret sauce isn't worth much.
0: That's right. That's the whole point of the exercise is to we changing the organization, changing processes. So interesting.
1: Yeah. So that's the difference for me between that secret potion that the medicine professional of the 17th century, the private physician mm-hmm. holds in his pocket and will never, ever reveal the secret of, and aspirin that actually works.
0: Yes. So does that mean that you think, that data science, if it is to survive, as you said, that it will get much more specialized as a similar path to what medicine has taken?
1: In the sense that you will have data scientists specializing in various domains. Mm-hmm. I think the field is already gigantic. There's mm-hmm. just so many different types of activities, so many different verticals that have their own specializations. My own personal belief, yes is that every data that you encounter is different and the value in that data is in understanding what that difference is. How is your data unique? And I think you will need people who will delve into the data. I think that that ultimately will be for every company separately, that will be their added advantage and how they will Continuously get better and better in data science. But that doesn't mean that the basic set of tools regarding how to go down that path has to be completely different for every vertical and for every company. I think the basic tools of the trade are still the same for everyone. And again, there are a great many of them and there is already some specialization. And the wider the market becomes and the more prevalent this is, the greater that will become. And even more so, I will say, the more strategic value there will be in data science. Because right now, I think Many companies understand that they have to do this because, like I said, there's board of directors pressure, there's beliefs by the CEOs, et cetera, et cetera. But very few companies in Australia actually take data science to be something strategic, Mm -hmm. something that when you make strategic decisions, you rely on. There is so much highest person uh, opinion, so much hippo, there is so much gut decisioning, there is so much Aversion to the idea that a computer program will take away my ability to decide, will decide for me, and how can I trust it, etc., etc. And yeah, obviously, when you put it that way, You don't want to do that because that computer program is not going to be accountable for the decision in the end. You are going to be accountable for the decision. But I don't think that's what data science looks like. Data science is a tool for you to be able to see more of reality in order to actually be able to make yourself better decisions. And that application of that tool isn't prevalent yet. And the strategic value from data science isn't yet reaped. But I see that as definitely something that we have to be aiming for. For me, data science is as integral for business as computers are. And I've been from uh, the start of the dot-com hype, the start of the, well, we need lots of software engineers. Oh, wait, we need lots of programmers. Oh, wait, we need lots of computer scientists. I was there when that started. Yes, I'm old. And I've seen the path that that took from where we were back then to where we are now. And I see that happening also with data science. And I think it should happen with data science. But part of that is to understand that two things must happen on the one hand, the manager must become more literate in this. So managers are a lot more computer literate now than they used to be. We are expecting people to work with computers on their desktop. We are expecting people to not have the need for a personal assistant if they can use Outlook and set up their own appointments or Google Calendar or whatever. That's a level of understanding that I expect managers to also have in 10, 15 years time with data science. I expect it to be a tool that everybody understands the basics of and works with, which completely does not obviate the need for an IT department. And and for exactly the same reason, does not obviate the need for data science department.
0: That is the dream. That would be fantastic.
1: don't remember what your original question was. No, this
0: is fantastic. There's so many follow-up questions that I have. You spoke about having poor data analytics strategy in an organization? I wouldn't say
1: poor. I would say no data strategy, Uh Uh, by which I mean nobody's actually stopped to think about that. Nobody stopped to say, well, we need a data strategy. A data strategy is just part of your overall strategy. Just like any other strategy, your product strategy, your marketing strategy, you need a data strategy. And that data strategy has to interact with the other strategies. Mm -hmm. And I don't see the data experts in those same panels that do the design, those strategies. They're not on those boards. They're not on those committees because we don't take data to be that important that it requires a strategy. But data strategies are are complex things. And not only do they need to interact with your other strategies, you need to understand what it is that you're trying to do. What are you trying to leverage? Are you trying to leverage that you have better data? Are you trying to leverage that you have better access to data? Are you trying to leverage that you have better ability to utilize data? Are you trying to leverage that you have better analysts? All of these things Take you in different directions, and not just in the sense of they take the data science department to a different direction, Mm -hmm. they take the company to a different direction. I am reminded of the story of Compaq. Compaq and Dell were producing pretty much identical laptops. The only difference was that one of them sold directly and the other sold through retailers. And that did not make any difference in the world of. I don't know, 1980s, until data analysis came on board. And as soon as data analysis came on board, Dell had so much better data. They had such a better view Mm. of what their customers were buying and why were they buying it, that they could make better products for that market. They could market better their own products to get to the outcome. They could reach the people where they were there to be reached. And as a result, Compaq is dead. Mm. Dell is very much alive. Okay, it's a very, very simple difference, but that's where data strategy leads you. That makes sense. And I don't see that kind of thinking anywhere. I certainly don't see that kind of thinking in any company I've worked with or for anywhere in Australia. Yep. What I have seen in Australia, I was asked by a CTO of one of the companies in Australia most identified with data analytics. If you were to think up what is the company that has the best data analytics in Australia, this would be one of your top three choices. Mm -hmm. I was asked by the CTO of that company, when are we gonna have a version of this that works? And I asked, a version of what? Do you think data science is something that you buy, that you install, that it comes with 1.0? What what do you think this is? That's the level of understanding that boardrooms currently have And when we're saying data strategy, they have no idea what we mean. And they are the ones who need to decide on a data strategy.
0: And they're the ones that that the data scientists need to be interacting with to help make the strategic decisions. For the organization and as you were saying sort of
1: do the analysis so like i said i'm doing my part in trying to educate that market and i think there needs to be a lot closer linkage between our data people and the executives the decision-making executives but it's getting to be increasingly hard it's getting to be increasingly swimming against the stream because again of vendors yes. because as long as vendors are trying to push something like artificial intelligence mm. to executives, that will never happen. Mm. Because the the very core of that statement, the very core of that thrust is to tell to managers, this is too complicated for you to understand, therefore don't try. Yeah. And to me, that's the core of what artificial intelligence is. It's about don't try to understand it. It's this big black box, don't get near it. And as long as that is the message, you can't have people thinking about data strategy Mm. because they don't understand these tools, they don't understand how they work, why they work, how they fail, or what they need in order to get the job done.
0: That is hitting the nail on the head. Where does data governance come into play in all this?
1: So I'm really glad you asked about that because data governance is so often confused with data management. And it's not. It has nothing to do with data management it has everything to do with having again a strategy behind the flow of data in your organization and what it does and to me that starts to that dovetails with say things like ethics what are we using the data for and why are we using it for that reason. And when we're making the decisions, how accurately do they really have to be in order for them to have a positive impact? Because they can just as easily become a negative impact. Just the fact that you're doing something via machine learning does not automatically mean it's gonna be better than Mm -hmm. human decision-making. How do you deal with all of those cases in which results are wrong? Because a core of machine learning is that you have type one errors and type two errors. Mm. You can't avoid that. There will always be those types of errors. What do you do? And how painful are they? These are things that need to be asked. And when I say ethics, organizations right now are basically covering their ears so as not to deal with ethics. They have ethics committees. They have mm. ethics discussions. But I've, I've been on those. And ethics is certainly not a topic in those what is sometimes a topic in those is a form of what ethicists would call consequentialism. The best, the closest that has gotten there to ethics is the question of if the newspapers find out that I do this, what will be the backlash? How bad is it going to be? Well, maybe it's so bad that we should not be doing this. That to ethics, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I'm struggling to find a good analogy here. That is what McDonald's is to a Michelin star restaurant. Yes. Yes. What I would like to see happening in this space is organizations actively asking the moral questions, asking what will the impact of these decisions be? And based on that answer, to raise questions about, is this the right thing to do? And is this worth doing? And a lot of times, data scientists are to begin with in a bind ethically. We are using information that we have about our, say, potential customer base. Let's look at the marketing. Okay, we're, we're using the Facebook data, the Google Analytics data, all of the, this data that is semi-covert I would say. The reason why it's so valuable is because the users don't know that we're using it or at least are not consciously aware of it. Mm. And we're using this data in order to shape and personalize advertisements and reach out specifically for this person and this person and this person. And to me, the closest example of something like that that is not about data science is subliminal advertising. And we've outlawed subliminal advertising Mm. because it's not ethical. So a data scientist today, from day one in an ethical mind, the question is just how far into the grays are you willing to go? And I don't think that's a question that the individual data scientist should be faced with. I think that's something that should be a board of directors type conversation. It currently isn't, and I see blunders in this everywhere I go. Many of them make it to the newspapers, but all companies that I've worked with have done things that I've had to say, wait, that's not right. Let's not do that. Mm -hmm. And again, the ethics committees that are meant to patrol that, no, they just aren't equipped to do that. They don't see that as their job. Their job is basically to make the minimum amount of fuss. And again, what is the solution? external review. It's so obvious that anybody inside the company is in a conflict of interests here. Yeah. Unless you bring someone from the outside to look at those things, you don't actually have an ethical review. Exactly.
0: Do you think we'll have regulations around
1: this? We're already starting to have it. But again, they're very blunt instruments. So things like uh, the GDPR, things like all of the uh, consumer data privacy laws that are coming out, those are first steps. But again, to bring in an analogy from the past, I think where we are in terms of ethics and data is similar to where we were in terms of workers' rights in the Industrial Revolution. We have Just started and it's going to be pretty bad for still a while before it gets any better. But the need is so obviously there that organizations, much like they did with workers' rights, will need to get to the understanding that having regulation is better. And the fact that they are currently reaping ton loads of money, That is arbitrage that cannot stay. It has to be closed because it's not sustainable. The reason why we're getting the Googles and Facebooks of the world is because of this arbitrage of the personal data from you, from me, from all of us has been plundered and they are just selling back to us what is already ours. If we let that stand, I don't think we have a sustainable market and I don't think that we have the ability for others to also utilize data in a conducive way, let's put it this way. Conducive to everyone, not just socially conducive, also individually, commercially conducive. I think this is a, again, chopping the very branches that we're sitting on.
0: To continue the data arbitrage.
1: I'll give you a simple example. If I were to sign on to Facebook today, which I might because I'm still not on Facebook, And the reason why I'm not on Facebook is specifically because they have terms and conditions. You probably never read them, but I can tell you I didn't read them either, but experts have analyzed them. I don't know what it would be if you tried to print it, but something on the order of 200 pages. Uh. Nobody reads it, but it's completely draconian. The Facebook terms and conditions specifically are probably the worst around. They include many things that law professionals think will not stand if they were reviewed in a a court of law. But still, a third of the world, I don't mean a third of the Western world, Mm. a third of the world's population is currently on Facebook, which means they've all ticked those terms and conditions. And why? Because you have to, because Facebook is such an integral tool for so many things right now and businesses need it and individuals need it. And you are not as an individual in any way able to say no. However, let's compare that to workers' rights. If there was no regulation around minimum wage, what would happen? Every uh, employer would uh, just bring that wage further and further down. It's not like we don't have examples of this also going on today. I mean, you have uh, work for me for free and it will just be a a training uh, whatever and see how much value you will get for that. We have that even so, but the point is, it's not at the level of the individual versus the company. The wage, the minimum wage is not a right It is an obligation. It is an obligation that the government has imposed on the company because we are stronger as a cohort. We are stronger as a people than we are as individuals. And we can convince the government that this type of right is important. And then organizations, commercial organizations have to follow suit. And that is something that I hope we will see more of. In the future, because the individual me versus the terms and conditions that can't stand. We must have a digital advocate, which is much like to bring back the analogy from the medicine profession, much like you have a medical advocate in the form of your GP. You should have a digital advocate that would take it upon themselves to convince your local government to put up regulation against that and say, well, these are terms and conditions that are legal and these are not. And we are still miles away from getting the ethics of data science right. Yes.
0: Under that scenario, what do you think will happen with the data? Under these terms and conditions, we're essentially handing over the ownership. So I guess one possible scenario is the individual owns our data and we are lending it to organizations. The other one is for data to be completely accessible. But if essentially if one organization has it, then maybe they all have it. And that's sort of seen under the guise of the benefits for the individual, etc. What
1: type of direction do you think it could go? So it can go many directions. I can tell you what kind of direction I'm hoping it will go. So we currently have four or five major, I think in total, about nine different types of intellectual property. We've got copyrights, we've got patents, we've got all of these things. And in terms of property, this is obviously intellectual property that we're talking about data is, but I would argue that it's not any of these categories. And what is the problem right now is that we're trying to shoehorn data into these categories. We've got, for example, copyrights for data. And I'll give you one example of how ridiculous this is. Uh, There is copyright right now for the human genome. It's under copyright by the uh, first to sequence it. What? And I can tell you I am performing copyright violation right now. Uh I am, as we speak, (laughs) copying my DNA millions of times. That's right. And um, that's just ridiculous it means that copyright wasn't the right way to go about this. And I think the reason why we're shoehorning it is because when we only have these particular types of intellectual property, I think we need, in order to properly govern data, we need a new type of intellectual property and start to define what we want for that. And part of what we will need, part of that definition will be about relinquishing some, I wanted to say very old ideas, but in fact, they're not that old. They only go back to the 18th or 17th century, which is ownership. The whole idea of ownership needs to evolve. Because if we have to make a Boolean choice about this is either my data or this is your data, and based on that choice, everything flows, well, this is a very uh, highly granular way of dealing with data and just doesn't fit what data is. Instead, we need to start talking about data rights what rights do each one of us have about this data we don't actually need to talk about who owns the data it doesn't change anything mm-hmm. what does it matter who owns the data let's talk about rights in terms of where will this end up well nobody knows where this will end up it can go many different ways but i can tell you in organizations that i've been data politics are always a thing it's always the case that anybody who has data that is valuable is going to put a big moat around it and the importance of their department is going to be measured by how deep that moat is and how wide that moat is because the less people have access to that data the more important they are. That is a data custodianship model and I've done in every organization I've been in the best I could often unsuccessfully, to move from a data custodianship model to a data stewardship model. And the data stewardship model is you don't get value from the data by having it. You get data from the, va- from the data because the company gets value from the data that value that the company gets from the data gets funneled back to you somehow. It gets attributed to you. And there are many, many different ways in which you can attribute back that value. But as soon as we start measuring, accounting for the value of data, if you will, put it on the balance sheet, put it on the actual balance sheet, not just even as a metaphor, actually put it on the balance sheet. It suddenly changes the picture completely because suddenly that guy that was building the moat before has a vested interest in making sure their data goes everywhere. Make it work for as many people as you can, for as much value as you can, as long as you can make sure that it's all attributed back to you. Mm -hmm. As long as that linkage still persists, all is good in the world. And I think that can be done. I think we have enough solutions of data governance and enough solutions of data management to make sure that that is done. I've been in uh, many conversations with the Office of the National Data Commissioner that are trying to right now build their own data sharing and release policy and bills for interdepartmental data sharing within the government. And that's exactly the sort of policy I was advocating for in which people actually get attribution back for the entire process, not for individual A gives to B transactions. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg has the technology to do that on a global scale. And I think every single one of us should be attributed for the value that Facebook makes from their own data. And we have micropayment technology. There's no reason why I shouldn't get a fraction of what Facebook makes because they've used my data. But, and here's the the thing, as soon as you actually do that, as soon as you put data on the balance sheet, as soon as you actually attribute for the value of data, the plundering is over. And as soon as the plundering is over, there is no financial justification for the existence of Facebook because Mm. all its value is because it's plundering. As a sustainable business model, it's not there. It doesn't exist as far as I can see. So that's the dilemma. That's why the very giants of data are forever going to try and not accept that model. But then again, go back to the Industrial Revolution. All of the big factories were doing exactly the same thing back then as well.
0: Yes, and resisting the change.
1: And resisting the change and working uh, workers until they dropped. And uh, yeah, people died on assembly lines because they didn't have brakes.
0: Yeah, and it did change.
1: And it did change. Eventually it did change. It was not an easy process, but eventually it did change. And I don't think it's gonna be an easy process now either. But the first step of getting that done is to say this is not okay. Yeah,
0: so true. Thank you for that. That's amazing. Well, let's change tact a little bit and go through some of the listener questions that I've got compiled over time. And The first one that I wanted to ask you is, what are you most excited about right now? What are you either working on that's exciting or something that you've been looking forward to? What is exciting you in your work at the moment?
1: So six months ago, I've made a huge change in my life. Mm. And for the first time, become an independent guy, started my own company and am offering services that nobody's offering. So this... uh, analytics auditing that we talked about, the external review, there is nobody else in Australia that does this. There are very, very few, only a handful of people around the world that do this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, as an industrial engineer in my bachelor's so many years back, I know what a business plan looks like. So I know that I didn't have one when I started. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This was not done with the perspective of let's make a ton loads of money. This Mm -hmm. was done with the perspective of let's do some good in the world. Let's do some good in the existence of this market and let's make this profession that I so love something that is sustainable and that everybody can be part of and enjoy. And to me, that is right now the most exciting thing. It's a very exciting challenge to be at a position that I'm trying to and hopefully making a change on the global scale, at least on the national scale. Yeah, well, bit by bit. We're getting there. It has made one immediate change in my life, becoming an independent, is in that I can say the type of things that we've been saying yeah. in this interview quite openly. And I've been saying them, like I said, with the Office of the National Data Commissioner. I've been saying them in every forum that I can think of and I've been invited to. And increasingly, these are good forums that I can uh, state this in. Whereas before, I was very much bound by what would be beneficial to my employer. So I'm very excited to start this new journey and we'll see how far it will take me. Oh man,
0: I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the industry. I'm excited for the work that you're doing. I think it's fantastic. So this is great. What are you most proud of from your career?
1: What am I most proud of from my career? My career has, has been just a series of amazing, amazing adventures, just one after the other. So many of my products are, so many of the data products that I've developed have changed the world in quite significant ways, sometimes in very visible ways. So uh, I was one of the data scientists to develop Xbox Connect sensor. You say that and people (laughs) know what it is. So so many data scientists out there can't say that even if they had wonderful careers filled with successes because mostly the stuff that we are so proud of is under the surface. It's purposefully invisible. But this is a case where I can say, here's my product and everybody recognizes what it is. What am I most proud of? I would say I'm most proud of the success that I've had mm-hmm. at Varian Systems very early on mm-hmm. because we started, like I said, a group of five people yeah. and I was the only data scientist among the five. Wow. And we were a part of a, a very large company that didn't at all believe in data. Uh, this is a company that believed in just storage and retrieval. Mm-hmm. It kept contact center recordings, also video recordings, just for reasons of compliance. So if somebody complains, you can (sighs) pull up the recording and say, well, you actually did sign on that contract. That's why they were recording. And we were able to show the viability of analyzing contact center conversations, which was completely not obvious from the start. Many people tried before us and failed. Contact center audio is just the worst imaginable audio. Huh. It's just to give you a, a quick rundown yeah. of this. We're talking about untrained speakers. They keep changing. They are two people in a dialogue. They are not speaking in any way that takes into account the fact that they're being recorded. They in an environment that has lots of background noise, that background noise is often other conversations about the same topics. Mm -hmm. And after you record it, you very aggressively compress it. And after the violent compression, you also make it mono by adding the two sides together and losing all of the side information. And... In the end, the best speech recognizers in the market reached roughly one in three recognition. So every word that got right, that they got right, had two other words that they missed and two other nonsense words that were interjected in their place. So imagine trying to work on that data. It's not at all a surprise that everybody who came before us just gave up on it. And we came with these new ideas and new tools. And by the way, again and again, like I said in the start, this was against the common wisdom, against the inertia, had to be done through a lot of after the boss leaves, a lot of skunk works, a lot of homebrew. And we were able to show the value in that. And slowly but surely, we started gaining traction in the market. The market was extremely hesitant because they've been burned so many times before that they just didn't believe our product works. Hmm. We had to actually fight for the right to just demo it in order to show that it has value. And we ended up just building an entire ecosystem for analyzing this data and all of the deeper analytical uh, tools, all of the dynamics, all of the context-sensitive uh, inferences, all of these things that are just expected nowadays with the most, when you reach down the road to the most advanced uh, levels of analysis, we had to build all of the tools up until then and to that in order to reach the value. And it was amazing. We built an entire pyramid there. And uh, for me personally, this was amazing because I had my signature on, on all of that. I wasn't one of 200 people doing it. I started as the only data scientist. I continued being the head of the data science team as I started expanding it and hired more and more people. And ultimately, I became chief scientist for the company and uh, was involved in a lot of other projects as well. uh, The company had quite a few other products that had just as much lack of data science behind them and uh, so much opportunity to do good things in them so yeah for me just seeing that pyramid getting built up how we started from nothing and in the end it was a world changing endeavor Varent became number 1 in its field it's still selling this product and it's been quite a few years it's still t- selling this product for over 100 million dollars per year
0: incredible yeah that's amazing and with such a rich and very and long career, surprisingly long. By looking at you. Surprisingly
1: long. (laughs) (laughs) I started early and I look younger than I am.
0: Yeah, you do look very young. Actually you said before that you're old, but I was like Only in the trajectory. I wanted to ask you about imposter syndrome. It's quite common in data science that for people to feel that they're not very good data scientists, that there's so much to know out there, it makes them feel that they know very little. And often data scientists feel like imposters, especially, I think, especially good data scientists.
1: Have you heard of this before? What do you think about the imposter syndrome? Oh, I've certainly heard about imposter syndrome. I'm married to a counselor, so I... Yeah, I completely agree. Imposter syndrome is everywhere. And I will freely admit that I have a raging imposter syndrome. And uh, if there were measurements for how much of an imposter syndrome you have, I, I, I would be right up there. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you an analogy. I just thought about this just before we started this conversation. You may remember the film The Princess Bride. Yes. And there is a scene there in which Fezik, the giant, played by Andre the giant, uh, fights Wesley, played by Cary Elwes. And Wesley jumps on the back of Fezik and just chokes him. Meanwhile, Fezik tries to just bump back against the rocks and walls, trying to get him off. And while they're doing this, Fezik is saying, I finally understand why it is that I'm having so much trouble with you. And Wesley says, why is that, do you think? And Fezik says, I've gotten so used to fighting entire gangs. I'm not used to fighting single people anymore. You make completely different moves when you're fighting just one individual. and That's about as far as he gets before he runs out of air and just drops. I think where I currently am in data science is very much where Fezik is in that situation. If I were today to go into an interview for a junior data science position, I would not get it. All of the questions that are asked for Junior data scientists are things that I no longer think are important, Mm -hmm. I haven't done in years, and they're not what interests me. These questions are mainly about, you go into a new project, what are the first three, four things that you do? And the data scientists are measured and qualified by how quickly they can go through these three or four. The problem is, you go through these three or four first steps in, if you know what you're doing, the first half day. And the question is, what do you do after that? And where I think most of the market currently is, is that they're expecting the project to be done after that half day. And I expect only the interesting parts to just start after that half day is done. For me, I'm, I'm just expecting somebody else to do that first half day of work. It's not what I specialize in. And uh, I get the problem after it's already become a harder problem. Here's an easy problem. Standard run-of-the-mill tools will solve it for you. Well, use the standard run-of-the-mill tools. <laughs> Why do I need to spend my time and my effort in chasing the never-ending stream of yes. more and more tools that come in for that first half day? It's such a, an insignificant portion of the work. I spend my time learning the new mathematical tools, learning the deeper domain understanding, learning how one thing impacts the other. These are the things I specialize in. So when I go to seek uh, consultancy opportunities or before that in my life, when I went to interviews for senior data science positions, I'm in a great position. I perfectly understand what you mean by the imposter syndrome and have a raging one because I say to myself, but wait, I don't know all of this stuff that even a junior data scientist is supposed to do. But that's fine because the field is so large. There are so many different tools and different tasks and it's such a large ecosystem. There is room for everyone. Yes. It's all good.
0: That's so true. And I have to ask, what are you learning about at the moment? Is there anything in the topics that you mentioned that is the, the things that you look for? Is there anything that you're or it can be what you're learning at the moment or the last thing that you did learn that was very enjoyable.
1: I learn in every project. I believe, like I said before, that every data is unique. And the only value that is true value is when you understand in what way it is unique. Mm. And look, I just had a few weeks ago, I had a contact from organization looking for what to do with festival data. And I started just casually looking at this, but within a day, I had a much better idea about what makes festivals work and how do festivals interact with each other And how do people interact with festivals? And as a result, transitively, how do people interact with people in Mm -hmm. festivals and around festivals? How does this ecosystem run? What makes it run? And therefore, what are its weak points? And unless you start that, unless this is your mindset, Mm -hmm. how are you going to get to things that are of value? Okay, it needs to be valuable for that ecosystem addressing the problems that it really has.
0: Yes. Outstanding. This has been... So interesting, Michael. This has bit fantastic. And thank you for being so generous with
1: your time. Uh, no worries at all. Thank you for having me. Oh. I enjoyed it. And I'm very happy and proud to be part of this uh, podcast that I'm hoping helps data scientists around Australia do a better job.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your insights, your wisdom, your perspectives. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership, and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and
1: valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.